everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks. Before we get into our program today, which is going to be talking about reducing the stress of caring for a loved one, um, I just want to tell you a little bit about us, uh, who we are and what we do, um, because we are always getting new listeners. Bottom line, Alzheimer Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. I started this company because my mom um, had dementia for 30 years, and it was just a life-changing process, not only for her, but for me. And uh, here at Alzheimer Speaks, we believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to remove some of the stigmas. We're going to be able to help people live better with dementia if they're diagnosed, if they're caring for somebody, either family and or professional. Um, it's amazing what comes out of these conversations. And I know you're going to really enjoy our talk today with uh, Jennifer Fitzpatrick. Um, at our core at Alzheimer Speaks, we also believe that collaboration is the only way that we're going to win this battle against dementia. And I can tell you, I know it's working. You see, because of your likes, your clicks, your shares with your Twitter tribes, your Facebook friends, your Pinterest peeps, um, your your Google gangs, um, you have gotten us named the number one influencer online for um, Alzheimer's, according to Sheer Karen Dr. Oz, as well as being recognized by Maria Shriver as an architect of change for humanity. So pat yourself on the back. Um, that really was not about us. That's about all of us working together to help get information and content out to people who need it. You see, I'm a firm believer that there we all have a lot of people in our own family circles, um, in our circle of friends, um, our co-workers, in our sphere of influence on social media. There are a lot of people dealing with memory loss <clears throat> and dementia uh, who have not kind of come out of the closet and talked openly about it. And the more we can get information and education out to them, the easier it's going to be for them to grab when they're ready. And so I really encourage you to continue to help us push this information out into the world and also know that maybe you're our next guest. Here on Alzheimer's Speaks, we like to raise everyone's voice. So if you're a person who is um, struggling and maybe you think you might have dementia, maybe you've been diagnosed, maybe you are a family member or caring for a loved one, maybe you're a professional in the industry that is um, seen in need and maybe developed a, a product or a tool or a service. Uh, maybe you've written a book. Maybe you've written a song or a movie or a play um, or started some other new initiative or advocacy. We'd love to hear from you. Just reach out to me at lori at alzheimerspeaks.com um, or you can call me at 651-748-4714. I also, before I introduce Jennifer, want to mention that we still have openings on our Caribbean cruise, which is going to uh, launch. Uh, we're going to set sail November 11th through the 18th, and it's going to be a wonderful time. We've got a great symposium along with this cruise. We've got four people who are actually living with dementia who will be part of our educational team, Michael Ellenbogen, Lori Shear, Mary um, Reed and Harry uh, Harry Urban, uh, Urban, and then Cindy Lazinski, who lives in northern Colorado, who has started a dementia-friendly community there, will be one of the educators, along with Becky Watson, uh, who is a music therapist, will be um, be with me. And it's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be very interactive, and it'll all be about real-life living with dementia. Last, I just want to mention that uh, we have our Helpful Tips Dementia listed on alzheimerspeaks.com. 
and you can go ahead and download that for free. Um, and we encourage you to do that. It's got a lot of great information there for you. So let's go ahead and uh, let me introduce our guest today. I'm excited to have Jennifer Fitzpatrick with us. Uh, she is a social worker and she is a CP, uh, CSP, which I'll let her explain what that is. Um, she is the author of a new book called Cruising Through Caregiving, Reducing the Stress of Caring for Your Loved One. Um, she is a, um, she works at John Hopkins University um, in, as a, uh, let's see, Jerry, let's see, is it a gerontology uh, instructor? And she is also the founder of Generations, and that's with a J, Generations Health Education, Inc., which is a full-service training company. So welcome, Jennifer. How are you today? Great. Thanks, Lori. Thanks for that very warm welcome. Well, I'm going to have you describe this uh, CSP because that's a really um, rare uh uh, acknowledgement that you've uh, that you've reached, and um, people need to know what that stands for. Oh, absolutely! So the CSP is the Certified Speaking Professional designation, and it is uh, bestowed upon people that are members of the National Speakers Association. And you have to meet certain criteria in terms of your speaking career, in terms of ethics and eloquence and. Uh, entrepreneurship and and several different areas and yeah it is it is rare and I'm actually one of the few MSWs that there's only a couple of us in the in the whole world that have it so it's kind of a neat combination. Very cool. I was part of the National Speakers Association and I know how rare it is and so kudos to you for uh, for obtaining. Thank that. you. Um, one of the questions I always like to ask every one of our guests is, you know, have you been personally touched by dementia? in your, you know, family or circle of friends? People always like to just know that kind of as a little background information. In my family and friends, no. I actually have been fortunate enough that at this point in my life, I haven't had any family or friends with dementia, but I have been a family caregiver in several instances. So not not specifically with my family and my friends, but lots of experience professionally. Okay, wonderful. Um, one of the things that I want to talk to you um, with your book, and I just love it because, you know, of course, I'm doing the cruise here this fall, <laughs> and, and so I love your title, Cruising Through Caregiving. Um, can you tell us how do caregivers or care partners, as I like to call them, or care companions, um, you know, of a loved one with dementia, um, how do they intentionally... Um, decrease their stress or or maybe I should ask how do they unintentionally <laughs> increase their stress um, the well I can certainly process. answer both of those so people who have loved ones who have dementia there's going to be stress there's no question about that there's a lot going on that you have to manage one thing that people do that increases their stress unintentionally is try to do it by themselves. They say, all right, I, it's my husband, it's my wife, it's my mom. I got to be in charge. I've got to take care of everything. So caregivers have, care partners have probably heard that before. Don't do it by yourself. But there are also many other ways that care partners increase their stress and they don't mean to. Um, one is they expect the doctor to be their primary resource. And if if you're listening to this, show good for you because you're not doing that that that's something you're you're seeking out other resources and this is a great place to come Alzheimer's speaks um, there's so many wonderful organizations and services out there you want to get your information from lots of different credible sources because doctors have such limited time they a good doctor is going to prescribe your meds and treat any issues that you may have but they're not going to be able to always take the time to say, find a support group, or maybe you should go to talk to somebody yourself because of the stress that you're experiencing, or they're not going to be able to help you figure out how to pay for everything. So a big way that folks sometimes increase their stress is by waiting for cues from the physician. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I think uh, so often, you know, people look at, you know, they're the the end all means, you know, they have all the answers. And when it comes to dementia, you know, one of the biggest complaints that I hear is from the doctors, they, they gave me a prescription, they gave me another appointment, but they, that was it. And then I was kind of right. kicked out the door other than they said, get your affairs in order. And so a lot of the doctors aren't familiar with a lot of the resources that are, are there. And again, you know, is that really their job or not? Is it maybe the social worker's job and, and the clinic or the hospital hasn't really pulled that piece together yet? Um, you know, it's it's hard to say with that. But, um, you know, you have to be your own advocate, I think, really strongly with this disease um, and with and with many others. And and I think that that's a huge change in terms of how we look at medicine and um, and being cared for nowadays compared to even 20, 30 years ago. People just, whatever the doctor said was what the doctor said. And now with the Internet, um, access to information has changed. And do you see that playing a, a, a huge role in terms of how people look at things? The Internet can be, can be good and bad. I think the Internet can be great for research as long as folks are looking at credible websites like mm-hmm. yours, like the Alzheimer's Association or the Lewy Body Dementia Association. There are many credible, you know, Johns Hopkins, you know, if it's affiliated with a major university or, or a good nonprofit or a company like Generations or Alzheimer's Speaks. But sometimes people will sort of just Google terms like dementia and sometimes they don't get the right information. So when you're online, you just want to make sure that you're you're going to credible websites that you've, you know, you've heard that this is a legitimate place that you can get information from. So I think it can can be good and bad as long as you're going to good websites that that are are you know, they have appropriate information. I think that that it's a wonderful thing. I think people have to be really careful sometimes about just uh I have a friend for example who really smart person uh recently was diagnosed with skin cancer and she just started googling the type of skin cancer that she had and all kinds of wild things were popping up and i said here are the websites you are allowed to go to you know american (laughs) academy of dermatology for example you know you just don't want to google terms like dementia because you don't know what you're going to get no there's like 69 million you know, pages that'll pop up. And so it is right. really important um, that you don't believe just be, you know, just because it's out there doesn't mean it's real. You know, right. Donald Trump yells about fake news. <laughs> you know, and that that probably does come into play when it comes to to Google and the Internet in terms of, of what is happening, you know, out in the yeah, world. Absolutely. For any condition. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, you, you want to get more than one source. Um, I get people approaching me all the time with things, and I'm like, I, I just I can't have you on as a guest because I don't, there's not enough to back this up, you know, and I don't want to give people misinformation um, right. or, or false hope. Um, you know, that's not what, what any of us are about. Um, Jennifer, when you decided to write this book, I guess, what was your what was your push? What 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 made you wake up one morning and go on, I'm doing this. This is a need. I saw the way, so I decided to write Cruising Through Caregiving because I saw all of the ways that people were making caregiving and taking care of a loved one harder for themselves. It's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. You're going to have moments that are going to be very, very, very difficult, but there are ways that you can get through it. I, I say caregiving is not a vacation, but you can cruise more smoothly through it. There are strategies and ways that you can do it that you don't have to get sick yourself. You don't have to necessarily quit your job. Uh, I have a whole chapter on determining if you should quit your job or not. For some people, it's the right thing to do if, if, you're, if you're still working. Mm-hmm. For some people, it's the absolute worst thing you could possibly do. Another example is I would see people moving. Maybe they would move 300 miles away or 3,000 miles away to move in with their loved one to help caregive because they have dementia. 
for some families, that's exactly what they should do. And then there's other families where that is a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. And I think it really just depends on the family dynamics. It depends on the relationship. A lot of it depends on your financial situation. So I think there's a lot that we can do, whatever our financial status is, whatever our relationship is with our loved one who has a dementia diagnosis. There are many ways for everyone who cares about that person to help and to contribute without completely losing themselves. Yeah. And, and caregiving can be difficult. I know when my dad died, I was lost. I didn't know who I was anymore. He had brain cancer. My mom had dementia and such a big part of me was gone and I had done it for so many years. I mean, I really went through some trying times. People go like, well, what do you like to do? I don't know. I have not asked myself or done that in years <laughs> you know, because I was too preoccupied and I didn't have balance when I was giving care. And and so that was a, a really very interesting process. But, um, you know, like you had mentioned, you see some people quit their jobs or move across country. And, you know, you have to know who you are at your core, too. Right. You know, if, if you are not a nurturer, chances are you're not going to become a nurturer um, in this process just because you're forced into it. And and for some, that can get to be a really, you know, um, really a huge battle and can be more uncomfortable for both of you than anything. And so sometimes I think people feel forced that they have to. There's nobody else. So I've got to do this. This is what society says I have to do. And, and I think that's a big problem in society <laughs> in terms of how we how we Especially for women. Mm-hmm. Especially oh. for women because women have historically been the ones who take care of the children. And they take care of, you know, for many generations, women didn't work as much as men did, and they would take care of the older adults in the family. They would take care of the in-laws. They would take care of anyone that was ill. And some women just aren't natural nurturers, and just like some men are. And we do, like you said, society puts that pressure on us. And and we, I think a lot of us worry, if I don't, for example, if, if, if mom really needs a memory care unit, or mom really needs an aid because I'm losing my temper. You know, I can't be with my mother 24 hours a day because I'm not really particularly good at this. Mm-hmm. Then you got to be saying, okay, well, should I bring in some help? Should I examine what the options are for senior living? Is that the right path to go down? Because it, 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 I think what we what we miss sometimes is that the person who has dementia is not benefiting if you're miserable all the time. They are so sensitive. People with dementia are so sensitive to you and your mood and your facial expression and your body language. And if you seem miserable, that's contagious. They're not having a great day if you are angry because of having to take care of them. And you are, your loved one is going to be better off if you seek some help. Yep. And that's very true. You know, they pick up on the nonverbals big, big time. And and a lot of times we'll mirror them back to us. And then Mm -hmm. we think they're the ones with the problem when they were perfectly fine until we walked in the door. And so it's a very, very interesting. I know, you know, with myself, I used to be in real estate for 25 years. And I used to um, work in the senior market. And my specialty was senior housing. And so I counseled and advised people about moving all the time. And then when it was time for my own family, oh, no, I had a little different view. I could do this, you know, and my mom's not going there. I had promised, you know, she would never have to move. And, you know, all the things that we say um, that, you know, we, we say when conditions are, are A and now they're Z, um, and we don't look at the rational things of how much how much has changed in terms of time and abilities and stuff. And so I'll never forget the day my mom ended up wanting to move into a nursing home because my dad was there, and she didn't want to leave him. And so it was that in itself was really really interesting. But I'll never forget the day I walked into the nursing home and there she was sitting. Um, in a circle with the activities person kind of in the middle of this horseshoe and they were just 
all infatuated with this Oprah magazine that was filled. It was two pages of flowers. It was just gardens. And they were reminiscing. And I remember melting in that doorway just thinking, I couldn't give her that because I'm her daughter. I'm not her peer. And there's power in those relationships and feeling part of society and feeling part of having friends outside just family, too. And I think sometimes we as family members forget that, um, that we all like to be connected. And um, a person with dementia is, is absolutely no different, you know, in that, in that base. Um, I don't know. You, you might have some other thoughts to that, so feel free to. Oh, for sure. That, that's a really, when someone, like your mom and you, when, when the daughter or the care partner gains that objectivity, it's so it's, it's miraculous because you think, Oh, I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the only one that can do this. I'm the one that I I, I should be doing this. We put a lot of shoulds on ourselves. And then you see what they're getting when they are around other people. Think if you think about your own life, if you don't have dementia if you were only around one other person 24 hours a day, day in and day out, that can't be a picnic for the person with dementia either. Yeah. They're going to get tired of you too, right? Like you're going to, they need to be around other people. They need different kinds of stimulation, you know, and even if say, you know, I've been in this field my pretty much my whole career and I, I've talked to so many other you know, it's funny, I did, in cruising through caregiving, I interviewed 24 professionals who have worked in the field of caregiving. And many of them had the same comment when they were in a caregiving situation in their own family, just like you were talking about the moving with the real estate, that they were incredibly imperfect when they started making choices and making decisions, because they, they had, they knew how to be objective, and they knew how to help others because they had an education and they had experience. But when it's your own family member, it's hard to back off and to be able to see the big picture. And, you know, just you telling that story about your mom looking at the Oprah magazine with the flowers, you you sort of shared that you were standing back looking and it's almost like you saw a big picture of what what else she could have if it wasn't just you and her. Yep. Uh, exactly, exactly. And, and that was just such a powerful, powerful moment for me, um, realizing what I had preached all these years to other families was really true. And I was the one getting in the way in my own family, thinking, you know, no, I can, I can handle this. And I'm different because, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, I thought, <laughs> I was, that, you know, and, and it was just, it was just amazing. And my heart literally just melted because she was so content and she was so engaged. And, and it's like, isn't that what we want? And, you know, I worked full time. I had a family. She would have had to have been in the mix. And now she was, she was part of the priority of her right. needs being met. And, and I think as families, sometimes we, we forget we have all these really good intentions where you'd hear a lot of times people say, well, you know, mom and dad sell your house and you come and live by us. But the kids' schedules haven't changed. You right. know, their lifestyle hasn't changed, but now mom and dad are uprooted totally because their kids are going to care for them, but yet they haven't worked that into the schedule at times. It- well, I worked. I've worked with so many families where they say, "Oh, we're going to move mom in to our house because she has, she's got Lewy body dementia and she's got mid stage, and we're going to move her in." Mm-hmm. And then they exactly what you just said that they that both both of the parents, you know, the adult kids, the husband and wife, they're still working. They have kids that need to go to ballet and soccer and lacrosse, and. They think that the mom is safer because she's living in their home and she's sleeping in their home, but they haven't made arrangements. They haven't, okay, well, is someone going to be home with her during the day? There's such a big wander risk in mid-stage for any dementia, uh, or should she be attending adult adult day program, or should we have someone staying here with her? People sometimes make the assumption like, okay, if she lives with us or if she lives closer to us well, then she'll be safer. And that, it's faulty logic. Yep. 
Yeah, it really is. And and I understand where people are coming from. And I think really sure. that safety net is, well, we'll be able to get there faster is what it comes down right. to. Not that they're going to be safer, just that they're going to be able to get there faster. <laughs> right. When she wanders out of the house, you'll be able to get there faster. Yep. Yep. And, and so, but we don't go that deep because there's just not that you know, we just don't have the time for that. Now, when you when you wrote this book, what was your goal? To So if today somebody's listening and you feel like, so there's some exercises in cruising through caregiving that sort of identify where you are in your stress level. So let's say on a scale of zero to 100, so zero being you have no stress. We know there's no one listening that's got that, not even people who aren't care partners. But And then 100 is the most stress you could possibly imagine. If you're at 100 today, and if I were to present somebody with the book, Cruising Through Caregiving, maybe tomorrow or maybe in a week or maybe in three weeks, maybe you'll be at a 90. Maybe you'll be at an 85. I wanted somebody who's at a 70 of stress level, maybe they get to a 40. You know, that, that wherever you are today, there is something you can do to take back some control and reduce some of your stress. So whether, you know, for some people, you have plenty of money. Maybe that's not an issue for you and your family. For You know, you might not need that chapter, but for some people, you might be thinking, well, all this is well and good, but I have no money. And I really am the only one. I hear that a lot. I'm the only one. I'm the only, I'm an only child. I'm the only one. Yep. Or everybody else lives out of town. The cruising through caregiving, the whole goal was how do you find free and low cost help? How do you find people in your own network of friends and family and people you go to church or synagogue with or people that are in your book club? I'm not saying that, <laughs> that these people come over and help bathe your dad. I'm not saying that. But what kinds of things might they be able to do to help reduce your stress? Like, for example, maybe one of the things that's stressing you out is grocery shopping. And maybe one of your neighbors, when they go grocery shopping, they do your grocery shopping too. That's something that they can offer you. Most people want to help you if they know how to help you. And so that's part of cruising through caregiving. I wanted people to, to get ideas on how do I ask for help and what kinds of things are reasonable to ask of others. Even, you know, it doesn't have to be an immediate family member that might want to help you. Mm-hmm. One of the, I, I think, cutest stories I heard was a, a friend kind of scolding her friend who was caring for <clears throat> for a loved one. And she said, why do you always say you don't need help? I know you need help. And she said, and she handed her, and every time at church, this would come up, people would go, is there anything we could do? And, oh, no, no, I've got it under control. I've got it under control. And her friend was just so upset with her over this. And so her friend handed her a set of note cards. And she said, I want you to go home tonight, and I want you to write down everything you need help with. Cutting the grass, grocery shopping, you want to go get your hair done. She's like, I don't care what it is, getting the mail, going for a walk, coming over for a conversation. And you write those down and you keep those in your purse. And next time somebody asks you, just pull one of them out. Just pull one of them out. <laughs> and so this little old lady went to church the next the next week. And <laughs> her friend was observing her. And she pulled them out. And they had a conversation afterwards. And she said she was so empowered. It felt so good. But she said when she was hit on the spot, you know, she just didn't think of all the things she could use. So she just... That that deck of note cards was just her lifesaver for her. And I just love that story. It just, you know, whatever whatever makes it easier for you, use it. You know, do it for you. That friend of hers is rare yep. that she would say that. That a lot of people that know you're caregiving, they give up after a few times of asking. And her friend that you're talking about was great because she kept, she's persistent and yep. she said, try this. Here's the note cards. What a great story because so many people who are well-meaning in the care partner's life who care about you or care about your husband who has dementia, they are going to give up. They're going to stop asking because they're going to say, uh, she always says nothing. I guess everything really is okay. Yep. Yep. Exactly. 
So I think it's it's little things like that, you know, standing up for our friends and helping them, you know, reach out and get the help that they need. Um, what are some of the teams of of help that can be that can be helpful for someone who's who's uh, giving care? You know, there's there's I would imagine there's different types from physical, emotional, financial. Um, things like that. Um, do you have that broken down in the book? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So teams of help in cruising through caregiving, because there's a nautical uh, imagery that we use. It's like we, we say that the person who's maybe the spouse or the daughter, the you know, who's who's doing most of the work, the primary care care partner, that person is like the captain of the ship. And what we want, just very similarly to the story you told about the two ladies at church, there's an exercise in cruising through caregiving that it's called the MET exercise, and it's about how to get your needs met. And it's very similar to what you said the ladies at church were doing, emptying out your brain and writing down all of the things you could use help with, all the things that are worrying you, that are stressing you, just write them all down. And then you set a timer again a little while later and you empty your brain of all the people who care about you or care about your loved one who has dementia. And there's usually going to be overlap because if it's your wife that has dementia, you know, of course your grandkids are going to be on there, Mm -hmm. but, but you know, they, they love both of you, but you're going to have a list of people and then you're going to look. And like you said, can this person contribute by mowing my lawn? Can this person contribute by doing some internet research on, say, support groups? I've decided, you know what, I do want to try a support group. Maybe there, the other part that people are funny about because people don't like to talk about money is who on that list might be willing to contribute money? Because that is a major concern for many, many care partners. How will I pay for assisted living or for an aid to come in or, you know, maybe, maybe you don't even need that. Maybe you, it would just give you a break if you didn't have to clean your own home and you paid, someone paid for a cleaning service. And so what I recommend is you, you, you want to have the, the captain of the caregiving ship, and then you want to have at least one or two first mates, people that are going to do those asking for you. Like who, so if, if you're the adult child of the person who has dementia, maybe your best friend is going to be your first mate. And she's going to look at that list of stuff that you need help with. And she's going to look at the list of people that care about you. And she's going to start making some phone calls or she's going to start making some emails and say, listen, uh, you know, Lori's, Lori's struggling. You know, what kinds of things do you think that you could help with? You know, can you bring over a meal once a month? You know, maybe you don't, but you don't ask that question of somebody who's a terrible cook, right? You ask that question of someone who enjoys cooking. So you, you want to match it up with the kinds of things that someone would naturally be good at. And I always joke that I'm not a great cook. You know, ask me, I'll come sit with your loved one who has dementia, because that's something I'm uniquely qualified to do. Don't ask me to mow your lawn. I won't know how to do that. Don't ask me to make a meal. I'm not great at that. Well, I could do it. You probably won't really like it that much. <laughs> but but ask ask people for something that's not going to be a huge stretch for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that is so critical. A lot of times I see families struggling and a lot of times it'll be, I'll use a daughter as example who might be taking care of her dad and all of a sudden now she's giving her dad a shower and that is just can be so uncomfortable for some people. And Mm -hmm. she she would rather be doing the finances or she would rather be doing Mm -hmm. the grocery shopping and for families to talk about what are they comfortable with, what are they good at because there's a big difference between the two. And, and when we build these teams, we, we need to be respectful of what people are comfortable with and, um, you know, where everyone is at with that. And, and I see that as being missed so often um, in, the, in the team effort. It's just assigned or it's never discussed. Um, and I could probably use that excuse with my brothers and that I didn't, you know, I was frustrated doing some tasks that I thought they could have done, but I didn't even feel I got to the point. And I'll be honest, I got to the point where it it wasn't worth bringing up to them because I just didn't feel that they would change or step up. And so then I just continued on, but it was, it was really, um, as much as I loved caring for my dad, there were, there were some things where, you know, I, I would have rather not have had to have given him a shower, 
you know, I felt like it was an honor for me to do that when, when I ended up getting in that space, you know, but it was, um, it was something that, you know, it's not something you want to sign up for, you know, because it's, it's difficult, um, to think that, you know, your loved one needs that much care at that point. And, um, and, and, you know, all of what you just said is so common. I bet there's so many caregivers listening right now and they, can relate to that. One being that, you know, what you said about the the shower, I mean, for a lot of people, if, if there's someone listening that's thinking, gosh, that's me, well, there's no shame in hiring somebody or, or asking who, you know, a lot of times men are a little bit more comfortable if it's, you know, the son or if it's another man that they're friends with or, or just a professional. So there's no shame in that. And the part you said about your brothers, mm-hmm. that is so common. Again, goes back to most people who are care partners are women. And historically, we we, we kind of, a lot of the, the men and families will think, oh, gosh, my sister's got it. My, my wife's got it. You know, they don't think that they really are needed. But I would say if anyone's having those thoughts that, gosh, I really, really do have to, um, I, I have to do everything. You know, I, I don't feel comfortable. My brothers probably won't do it. Just don't expect them to be changing overnight, but, but say, listen, here's what my life, you know, you gave the example, you, you stopped working, you made caregiving the huge part of your life. Would they contribute financially? What, what, what would they be willing to do? Would they be willing to arrange for uh, an aid to come in, maybe they're not going to be hands on. Mm-hmm. And like you, you started out this conversation talking about how a lot of people do not have a nurturing personality. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It's just like, if someone said to me, uh, can you build a house? I can't do that. I would be terrified if someone asked me to do it. But a lot of people feel like that about caregiving. Mm-hmm. So what can you do? How can you contribute? And Lori, of course, some people are going to say no, or they're going to, they're not going to answer you at all. They're going to just act like they didn't hear the the request for help. But <laughs> more often than not, people step up. And the thing that I think is sort of miraculous, when you do start asking for help, I feel like if I can get, get out there a little bit in the, uh, you know, like a little, this is going to sound maybe a little new age, but when you start putting that energy out there where you're asking people for help, maybe your brother doesn't help. Maybe your brother doesn't respond, but maybe, you know, your mom's old friend from high school calls and says, Hey, can I do something? Is there something I can do? Don't discount the friends of the people, the the persons who have dementia. Often they have friends Mm -hmm. that want to help and don't, don't forget about them. They, they often feel excluded. Now, some of them are not going to be interested that that happens, but for, I think once you start putting that energy out there that you're open, you're going to be surprised Sometimes it's going to blow blow you away how many people generously offer some support. Well, and again, you know, we just talked about this on, on our last show a little bit about <clears throat> asking for help and knowing, you know, just remember how good it feels for you to help someone else. And when we don't accept that help, we're denying that. You know, we're, yes. we're denying others to feel good and helpful. And and that's a natural thing for many people who are friends and family, um, you know, for them to to want to do. You know, they're not in it for for any other reasons. I know for um, for my family, you know, with my brothers, I just kind of did it all, and we didn't have the conversation until after my dad died, um, how that felt and what that looked like. And it was a really an interesting one because their perceptions were of my, I have an older brother and a younger brother that I was a control freak. And of course, my perception of me was I was very organized. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, Absolutely. And so, um, and they didn't want to deal with the emotions, you know, that was kind of my, my zone and stuff. And, and, but it, we got talking and I had all these stories and they're like, where'd you have all these, how'd you get all these stories? And I just remember looking at them going, I was there. I was I was there. And I just felt this great sadness for them that they don't have all of these stories and all these memories that I have. 
And, and it just saddened me that we didn't have the conversation earlier to make those adjustments. So I really encourage families to, you know, utilize your book and, and your tools to have those conversations so that you, you know, right now, you know, if my brothers, there's, there's no going back. Time's gone. My dad's passed. My mom's passed. There's no changing what happened. And, you know, we can't, we can't change things if we don't have conversations. And so if we look at them as a, a normal you know, conversation versus I think a lot of families sometimes worry that, oh, if I bring it up, it's just going to be an argument, you know. But a lot has to do with our approach in terms of of things. And that can make a a huge, huge difference there. And and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be talking about my family. I just think it can be relevant in terms of um, what people can go through. One of the things that I I loved in your book was you have – the, the caregiver feelings chart um, and, and work uh, worksheet. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. So there's an exercise in cruising through caregiving where there's a hundred words on a page and it's an exercise where we, you know, we encourage you to make photocopies of it and you can actually download extra copies of it on, on cruising through caregiving.com. But you give it out to everyone who's involved in the caregiving process and take, take five minutes and just circle every word that you're feeling in the, in the last couple of days or the last week. Don't judge it. Just how you feeling mm-hmm. and take just a couple minutes and then look and then count up every word that you associate with positive and then count up every word that you associate with negative. Mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, it's not a scientific exercise, but my gosh, it sure does seem to, to, to be very eye-opening for a lot of people because if you've got 42 negative words that you've been feeling in the last couple days or week and you've got five positive, that is a sure sign that you are under tremendous stress and it's time to do something differently. What are you going to do differently to reduce your stress? And when I do this exercise, when I speak at events, and you you get people who they've circled thirty two neg sorry thirty two positive and four negative, and I'll say, well, why do you suppose that is? And they'll say, oh, well, I just joined a support group and I am bringing my husband to adult day now, mm-hmm. or I just brought in a home care aide 12 hours a week. They've done, they've made, they, they, they hit, they made a change. They realized that the negative feelings were overpowering them. Often someone has said, someone who loves them said, you don't seem like yourself. You don't seem like you feel good. You don't seem like you are doing okay. You know, what are you going to do differently? And sometimes it takes an objective, like a friend or a neighbor or someone to say, Hey, you need to look at what can you do differently? Because you, you, you know, you're just, maybe, maybe it's a neighbor that you walk with every morning and you, you haven't been doing it in months. And they say, gosh, you know, this is, this isn't like you, we've been doing this for 10 years. So I think it's 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 not a scientific exercise. It's very simple, but for a lot of people, it's eye opening. Yeah, no, I, I have something similar than that that I do, and like I said, it, it doesn't have to be complicated, folks. You know, um, I I think a lot of times complicated doesn't work. You know, and and we have to just get down to the simplicity of life, and what's clicking and what's not clicking to kind of get to the heart of things. And, you know, one of the things I was looking at through your book too is, um, and this phrase just stuck out to me, it says, why do we expect perfection from our senior care system? You know, and can you just give people some, some thoughts on that? Um, because I think, absolutely. I think perfection is a a huge huge issue, um, on many levels in many industries and in many roles. Absolutely. A lot, so senior living communities, especially, so especially continuing care retirement communities or assisted living, they are so beautiful and they're so pretty and they look just just lovely. And I think we sometimes expect them to function like a Ritz Carlton or a Four Seasons mm-hmm. rather than a healthcare community. 
their priority has to be safety and health. And yeah, they're going to make mistakes. Now, if they give your mom the wrong medicine, that's a major problem. But if your mom, you know, like I go always go back to the Splenda equal. I there, there was a somebody who whose mom wanted Splenda and they gave her equal for her coffee, and it was just it was like a federal case. Mm-hmm. And yes, your mom should have whatever sweetener she desires, but this is not something that you should wind up in the executive director's office screaming about. But sometimes caregivers, especially with the price tags on the communities, oh my goodness, it's, you know, it can be, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 a year or more. We expect it to be like a, a five-star or four-star hotel and restaurant. It, it, Their priority really needs to be safety and health. And sometimes I think we, they're going to make mistakes. And just work with them. If you like most of what's going on and you feel that your loved one is healthy and safe, and particularly if you feel that the aides who work with your mom, dad, husband, whoever your loved one is, are caring and sensitive and gentle, that is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we do forget that. Um, we we do forget that whole piece of of um, peacefulness and contentment and people being happy. And we, we get wrapped up in nicky nacky things sometimes. Um, but, but I think that that is um, what I have found um, is that a lot of times comes out of a family's sense of lack of control. And so I always, yep. t- I always tell people, you're only going to find what you're looking for. So if a family is feeling really um, guilt burdened that they're not there as much as they'd like to be, they're going to come looking for problems because they're coming looking to fix things so that they can be the best as possible. And what ends up happening is they end up nitpicking things. Instead of looking for moments of joy, they're looking for problems. And again, we're only going to find what we're looking for. And people don't even know that they're doing that. And I was one of them. You know, I was a daughter who, you know, you you want to be there 24-7 and you can't always and you don't have that trust level, especially when you first move in. And you don't you don't even know that that's going on with you until you look back, if you even look back. And then it was like, you know, for me, it was like, holy craps. <laughs> no wonder, you know, I was finding these things. That's all I was looking for. I wasn't. Well, I, I can. I can tell you, I, I've again, I haven't had a loved one who has had dementia, but I've had, I've been a caregiver for several family members who have had very serious illnesses, and I will tell you, I, I have, I have actually had a different perspective because just because I've been in this field, and one, I mean, when there's been something dangerous, I, of course, I take care of it, and I, I, you know, I make sure it gets addressed, but. I have, and and I know a lot of families are going to balk when they hear my suggestion, but when I have had a loved one in a healthcare setting, I have made it my mission to befriend all of the staff and Mm -hmm. let them know that, you know, I know their job is hard and I want them to communicate with me and I just, I want to have a, I take the initiative to develop a rapport with them because I, I want, I, I, cause I feel like that's what gets you the results. Um, you know, when, when, when I, I see families making that mistake a lot and it's because it's out of love and it's out of a lack of control, but sometimes it scares the staff. They're like, Oh gosh, that person who seems like they're angry all the time. Like they, they kind of go the other direction in the hallway. They want to, so I I try to tell, and families get mad when I say that sometimes, I'm paying all this money, or my medical assistance is paying for this service, I shouldn't have to befriend them, or I shouldn't have to be the one to try to develop a rapport. And I said, yeah, you shouldn't have to, but you're probably going to have a better experience if you try it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I do a lot of training as well, too, and I, I use that example of the staff running the other way and, and just educating them as to why a family acts the way they act. 
and they're just shocked. They they didn't they never thought of what it would be like to have their parent placed, and what they would be looking for and what they would need. And you know, most communities call when they screw up on a pill. Someone fell and got hurt. Uh, you know, a purse is lost or a sweater or, you know, it's always a problem. It's not a it's not a picture of a smile. It's not an activity where they're having a moment of joy. You know, and if we can start shifting some of the, the way we're communicating with family, we're going to build trust because that's the biggest thing that's not lacking or that is lacking in the beginning is that lack of trust. And um, and then talking to families about this, you know, but I think for me, my my thought process is we have to educate both sides of, of the wheel on this thing if we're going to fix it. So we honestly have to um, talk about why staff is dodging people and why families are attacking, if that's the case, um, so that they can see the other guy's role and how they're oh, feeling. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and there's no excuse. I mean, there's certainly no excuse for staff to do that. They shouldn't, but they're human, and mm-hmm. they sometimes do. Well, and sometimes families push them to it. I mean, because sometimes it's, it isn't pretty and it isn't respectful um, because people are at their wits end, you know, and it's, it's called emotions and it's, it's new, typically it's new ground for people and uh, it can be a difficult, difficult scenario, but we've got to keep those conversations uh, open and, um, and honest and, you know, build trust, build rapport, have compassion for, for one another in terms of how they're looking at things. Um, gosh, I can't believe how much our time is flying by here. I want to talk about um, the person with dementia. Are there some things that you think that they can do to help reduce um, the stress that they're feeling um, or for themselves and or for their team members? So a person who's diagnosed with dementia, if they are just getting a diagnosis, some of the things that I think that they can do to help reduce their stress and the stress of their loved one is just prepare as much as you can. It's hard. It's it's a it's a tall order to say I have this diagnosis and I do need to update my advanced directives. I do need to maybe I've never had a will before. Maybe I need to prepare that. But that for a lot of people gives them a sense of control have the conversations with your loved ones about what you do and don't want. And and I know this is, again, going to be a hard thing to hear for persons who have a dementia diagnosis, but please try not to say, I can't ever go to a nursing home. I can't ever go to assisted living. I don't ever want a stranger. You want your loved one to do, to keep you safe and keep you healthy and happy. And they, they can't, they can't in good conscience make those promises. They have to, you know, if, for example, like maybe you want, if you're, if you ever needed a, an aid in the home and maybe you're a man, Hey, I'd, I'd really prefer it to be a man. Or if you, if I ever need to be in a senior living community, please make sure it's, you know, within driving distance of, of, you know, at least most of the grandkids or, you know, those are the sorts of things that I think talk about those kinds of things that, because, I think we, if, if you are saying to family, I never want anyone else involved in this care, but you, my daughter, my wife, my grandkids, whatever, that is going to put so much pressure on them. You're probably not going to get the best possible care. You you probably, and you're probably going to be, your loved one is going to suffer and you're probably going to suffer. So, you know, give them, tell them what you're interested in, tell them what your parameters are, but try not to make any red lines in the sand that say absolutely know this absolutely know that definitely though talk about feeding tubes talk about you know would you ever want that research that understand what that means if in the late stages you know is that something you would want or would you want to just stop eating naturally those are things that can give you back a sense of control but the other part for people who have dementia, one of the things I've seen so many times is participating in a clinical trial can really increase a sense of giving back. So if you, if someone has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and they look into the clinical trials in their area and they decide to participate, there's all kinds of trials. Some involve medicines, some involve paper and pencil tests. There's all sorts of things. 
but a lot of times people feel like a sense of they're still able to participate in life that maybe they're going to be part of a potential cure. So maybe this doesn't happen to their kids. This doesn't happen to their grandkids. And that can give you a sense of purpose. And then the other thing is just in the early stages, live, just live, do, do as much as you can while you still feel good. And, you know, there is some evidence that perhaps, you know, the longer you're, you're, you're doing things, that you like, whether it's golf, you know, I don't know that you should be driving. I, you probably shouldn't be driving, but if you can still play golf, go play golf. If you can, if you can, you know, garden, garden, do, do things that you enjoy still, you just try to live and that'll give you a sense of, you know, at least a little bit of a sense of control and reduce some of your stress. Yeah. I, I think it's so important for people to live graciously with this disease and um, simplify and, and stay engaged. Uh, I think those are all really very, very important factors. And we're seeing more and more of that happening with the dementia-friendly communities, the memory cafes. There's a lot of initiatives out there now that are really helping people um, connect and, um, and stay connected and become active citizens like they were. Uh, and, and that's a, that's a process. I love, I don't know if you know of, uh, one thing, I just have to give them a plug dementia mentors, which is for people who are recently diagnosed and they can sign up to talk to someone, to a mentor who is living with dementia. And, you know, cause no one knows what it's like to hear those words. You've got dementia no. and, um, really help connect, keep them connected, walk them through the process and stuff. It's pretty pretty cool thing and that can reduce stress not only for them but also also their team as well in wrapping up i wanted to talk a little bit about um, millennials because i know there's some recent data that suggests 25 percent of all care partners are millennials and i think a lot of our audience might be a little shocked to hear that can you talk a little bit about that that research and what specifically that group can do to reduce stress Right. AARP is, is, has recently revealed that. And yeah, it's, it's shocking because there's a lot of negative stereotypes about millennials and my goodness, if they aren't very caring and hardworking, taking care of loved ones, and this is 25% of all caregivers, not specific to dementia, but it's still a significant number of people. Some things that they can do. One, uh, I actually worked with a millennial who prematurely quit her job. And you got to remember that the high end of millennial now is around 36. So this person, I guess at the time was about 33, quits the job to take care of the parent and had a heck of a time getting back into the workforce. If you're 65 and your mom has Alzheimer's and you want to quit your job, maybe you know, you have plenty of money in your 401k and you're, and, and it's okay that you, you, you can take five years off or you, or maybe you can completely stop working. That might work for you. But if you're 33, 34, really, I, I know you love your mom, you love your dad, whoever that person is, but you got to think about the long-term repercussions because if, you know, so, so what, what potentially can increase your stress is say you have a couple of, of small children and maybe you really do need your income or, or maybe if you take five years off and you're in an industry where that's a lot, that could be tough for you to reenter the workforce. And so just really the, the chapter that I wrote on thinking really hard before you quit your job, I would really recommend millennials just really, because I've worked with millennials who have had some challenges with that, you know, and and sometimes going part-time, if you really feel like you want to spend that time with the parent, you know, maybe it is the right thing for you to do, but maybe do it, go part-time or, you know, have a, have a plan that maybe you're going to take six months off and then maybe you just take a leave of absence if your organization will allow it. But just, you have to always be looking at the spinoff effect of the financial component, because what happens when, if you don't have enough money for your own retirement, what happens to your kids and what happens to their kids? There really can be a spinoff effect. So I really encourage millennials to just be really, really cautious um, about the financial component because typically, not always, but typically 
they they don't have as much saved and invested as as caregivers who are older. Mm-hmm. Which is very very true. Um, and it, it, every, you know, every person is different. There's a saying, you know, once you've met one person with dementia, you've met one person. But I think we have to take that further and say once you've met one, if it's caregiver, care partner, care companion, whatever you choose to use, you've just met one. Because we all come with different baggage and different history and different life philosophies. And, um, you know, we have to we have to really look at ourselves because if we're not healthy, we can't care well. And I think that's one of the things people forget so often is, you know, if you're not if you're not staying balanced, if you're not staying healthy and, you know, the, the statistics are out there that show um, caregivers many times will will end up with significant health problems or even pass away before their loved one because they they haven't taken care of themselves. And stress does a lot of damage to our system. And um, I think we have to look at that really hard and fast and, and realistically, um, knowing that we are able to fully care to our best, because that's why most of us step up to the plate, is we want to give good care. And, and balance really just comes with that. And it's nothing to be ashamed of, that you need a little time off or you need to take care of yourself for a little while. And um, we really have to do some um, strong reframing on that, I think, as a, as a world. Well, and that's an advantage that millennials do have because they, have, they are bold in asking for balance in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And they've really shaken up the workplace in a way that, that other generations – are, are a little shocked by sometimes, but they are bold. If they need time off, if they want to take a leave of absence to take care of a loved one, they're going to go in and investigate their benefits. They're going to go, whereas we see, I think, Generation X and the baby boomers and, of course, the traditionalists, they, they're so timid. Not, not all of them, but generationally, they're more timid. Um, so I think that's an advantage that millennial caregiver, care partners have. Mm-hmm. Definitely agree. Well, Jennifer, this has been just a great conversation. I appreciate you uh, coming on the show with us and talking about your new book. Again, the title is Cruising Through Caregiving, Reducing the Stress of Caring for a Loved One. And um, I would really encourage people to pick this up. It is just jam-packed, full of great information. I think this will be a kind of a little resource Bible for a lot of people um, because you can pick it up, read a chapter, and, and dive into it again later. It's not something you have to sit down and read all at once, though you can. Um, and I think, you'll, I think you'll refer back to it and maybe pass it around your own family uh, to get a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of people on the same page and looking at caring for someone a little bit differently. So thank you for the work that you do. Um, what is the best way for people to get a hold of you, Jennifer? Oh, sure. It's um, so cruising through caregiving.com and they can follow us on Twitter. Um, Fitzpatrick Jen. Um, I did just want to mention as much as we would love for you to purchase cruising through caregiving, we'd love that. Um, know that it's in a lot of libraries nationwide. So um, if you are on a budget, um, that is one way you can access it. And there's actually, um, if, if you just want to check it out, you can go to cruising through caregiving.com and you can download the first chapter for free. Wonderful. Well, I wonder if our Roosevelt and Shoreview libraries here in Minnesota have them. They actually have um, minder packets that they are putting together for dementia. And um, I'll have to make sure uh, our lead librarian knows about that because maybe this is a, one of those books that they can purchase to, to add into those memory minder packets that they do. Um, they've, they've just been knocking them off the shelf with people coming in for them. So that's been kind of fun to see, uh, that the need is, is really being met. So again, thank you for your time and all the work that you're doing. Appreciate it so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Really appreciate you too. Thanks so much, Lori. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, for those of you that didn't, uh, didn't hear me before, there is a giveaway, um, uh, Newman Long-Term Care is giving away five Color Your Mind books, which were written and designed by Maria Shriver. And it's a new adult coloring book, but it also has lots of great information 
in it as well. So it's not strictly just coloring. I also want to just uh, let people know that here on Alive and Social, all of our shows, we go back six years now, are in the archives. So you can go ahead and listen back to your heart's content if you'd like. Um, our last few shows, we talked about uh, real estate and, and when's the right time to make a move. Uh, we had uh, Footprint ID out, which uh, talked about enabling families to easily access medical files and the Brainworks Kitchen, which was really kind of cool that has pillars of dementia prevention um, in the kitchen. So um, that, that was a very fun, fun show with Annie and, uh, and Martha. Uh, we're doing our Dementia-Friendly Cruise and Symposium again November 11th through the 18th to the Caribbean. We'd love to have you join us. Just go to alzheimerspeaks.com. You'll see information about that. And what else can I tell you? Um, on the blog, there was a, um, a prose posted by Julie Foster called An Ordinary Day, which has to do with dementia. You guys have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye, everyone. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.